I was asked to speak on these subjects for this missions conference, the waiting world and the willing church. And tonight we're looking at the willing church. I'm looking at Philippians. One of the, what's considered one of the Roman prison epistles, Paul wrote it when he was in Rome, we think, in prison. And he's writing to this church in Philippi that's a good ways away. And he has reasons to do so. And let me give you four of them that I think stand out from the letter that he wrote called Philippians. Number one, he would write this letter to say thank you. Thank you for sending this gift by the hands of Epaphroditus probably a monetary gift. Thank you. Secondly, he wrote to exhort them in their church family to love, to unity, to service, to warn them about false teaching. Thirdly, he wrote to them to encourage them how to give themselves to the Lord's joy with the right perspectives, perspective on, on sufferings, his sufferings. He's in jail. And they might get discouraged and and become disillusioned with the Christian faith. As we see something of that in John the Baptist when he was in prison and he felt like, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Christ. And in a moment of weakness, he, he had some serious doubts. And Paul is writing to help them to appreciate God has a purpose behind all our sufferings. They're not for nothing. And there's a way to have joy in our sufferings. And here he is in prison, suffering tremendously. And yet this epistle, as we see in chapter 4 and verse 4, where he says, rejoice in all things. And again I say rejoice. In this, this four-chapter letter to this church, he uses the word rejoice or some form of it 14 times. Made that 16 times. 16 times, joy or rejoice or gladness. And the fourth reason he would write this letter is to give assurance as to why Epaphroditus returned early. To let them know that it was because of a sickness and Paul himself was the one who sent him back. Apparently, they wanted him to stay longer and minister to Paul and be a real partner and help to him. But he sends Epaphroditus back And he's vouching for him in this letter. But the central purpose behind this letter and the whole backdrop behind the letter is that of missions. And it makes this letter very uh, relevant to our missions conference here this weekend. I've entitled this uh, sermon, besides the willing church, Three Men and a Church. I'd like to speak to you about these three men and then about the church. And the three men begin in chapter 2 and verse 17. The first one is the Apostle Paul. The second one, verses 18 to 23, is Timothy. And the third, verse 25 to 30, is Epaphroditus. These three men pick up in Philippians 2, 17. And he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Looks like there's four times right there in those two verses he uses the word glad and rejoice. Then in verse 19, he speaks of Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How? As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. And then verse 25 through 30, he speaks of Epaphroditus. And he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The three men. Let's start with the Apostle Paul. And what we have in Paul is an example of a missionary who does, who does pioneer work. He's like the guy that it's the head of the line that's going through the jungle. And he takes his machete and he is cutting a swath, a path, in which others can follow him. A pioneer missionary. It's like in the 1800s when missionaries begin to go into West Africa. Their life expectancy was six months. They knew that and they went anyway. So you had one missionary go and in six months die. You had another missionary go and step over his body and go further. And then you had a, they would die and you have another step over that one and go further and take the gospel yet even further. And Paul the Apostle, he says, and I think you have printed in your bulletin in Romans 16, 20, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I build on another man's foundation. Now that's not everyone's call. To be a pioneer missionary, to go into areas where it's never been gone, has, has been introduced before. We see in, in 1 Corinthians 3 that we're all fellow workers, we're partners. One man sows seed, another man waters, and another man enjoys the increase in the vineyard. But someone has to do it. Someone has to be that pioneer missionary. It's often very difficult and very costly. Like those that went into West Africa, they lost their lives. But they accomplished what was necessary. In being with brothers and sisters in Korea, you hear stories of how that many were butchered, like in the 30s and 40s by the Japanese. And especially during times like of the Boxer Rebellion when, when there were so many foreigners, especially missionaries, that were butchered for the cause of Christ. I met uh, other men in China who had paid dearly, and they told stories of men. Uh, I was on a, went outside uh, in western China, and uh, we drove way back in the country, and uh, hiked into a place where there was a village on top of a hill. And there in that village, it was, there was a, a church that has stood for over 100 years. And the story goes, and these people there told us how that, uh, that church was built, and the people as a church were gathered by those that were trained by Hudson Taylor and that China Inland Mission that made its way into China. They went there and they, and I, I sat on pews that were built by that missionary that was trained by Hudson Taylor. And I listened to three men who got up that just for the sake of a few of us who went to see them and fellowship with them, several of those men who got up and just sang, they sang, holy, holy, holy. And then they sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And just knowing their story, the fact that they had watched years earlier, their pastor, uh, the police came up from, from a city, not hearing that there was a Christian work up there, came up and, and they took their pastor from the pulpit while he was preaching, took him outside the church building and put a bullet into his head. And they took the older people of the congregation down into the city and put them in the stocks and left them for days. 
when they finally let them loose, the, the church family had to carry them up the mountain. They could not even navigate uh, their way up the mountain. They were so injured. And one of the men standing there in front of us said he was a young man when he saw his pastor executed and the older people in the church going through that kind of torture. And it was obvious somebody had to take his place. And so he prepared himself theologically, studied the word of God, and the church made him their pastor, and he's been there ever since. And today I'm using chopsticks. Whenever I uh, take Chinese takeout or Thai, I use some chopsticks that I ate with. And while I'm there on that mountain, and while I ate with them, I said, can I ask you for a special gift? They said, what? These chopsticks. If you will give them to me every time I use them, I will pray for you and the work of Christ on this mountain. And when you hear stories like that, you've just got to appreciate how many people in this world, how many saints of God have given their lives for the cause of Christ, for the spread of the gospel, to be faithful in missions. Somebody has to do it. Then there's Timothy. We see in verses 18 to 23, here's an example of a pastor who moves among churches. Should it be done? Should a pastor leave one church and go to another? You can say, well, Timothy, Titus, they were Paul's special deputies. That's not necessarily uh, what should be done by pastors today. But, well, Timothy, are we sure that shouldn't be done? He pastored at least four churches in the New Testament. Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus. Should it be done, pastors moving from one church to another for the sake of the team, for the cause of Christ? When churches work together strategically, where there's need, where there's opportunity, where there's men who have certain gifts, special gifts, and and places where they can be greatly utilized at a certain time, At least it's certainly not disallowed in the Scripture. And in many cases, in my experience, I've seen when a man makes a move like that, it can be very good for him and also very good for the church he leaves as well as the church he's going to. But it's a sacrifice for a man like Timothy. A man like Timothy, it's very difficult, who's rather timid, fearful, insecure and unsure of himself, to go into a new situation where he's built uh, such a family rapport and secure relationships and acceptance and and comfort within one body and then to have to leave and go and start all over again, that can be very difficult. But it's also difficult for the church he leaves. It's painful. But what it does, it, it calls us to Make sure that we're growing in the Lord and not depending upon any man for our development in Christ and for our persevering in grace. We're in this thing to see the work of Christ go forward. And thirdly, you have Epaphroditus. Here's an example of a messenger from a church that travels to missionaries on the behalf of a church to represent the church to provide ministry and care for that missionary on the field for the sake of the church. And that's no small task. Uh, when you're looking at uh, these days in, uh, when Epaphroditus had to do it, do you realize between Philippi and Rome, it was, it's at least 800 miles. And that was before the days of Delta, American, and United. It was even before the days of Nike. It could probably take him four months to get from Philippi to Rome. And think of the dangers, the weariness, the loneliness of being a messenger sent by a church. You talk about a short-term mission. If it took him four months to get there and four months to get back, and however much time there, 
that church could have been without this significant trusted leader in the church for maybe a year or more. But they were so into caring for their missionary. So into providing that rich koinonia for their missionary as well as support for him. He says of Epaphroditus, who is not considered a missionary per se, but he says, he's my brother. The word is Adelphos, out of the same womb. Brothers and sisters are born out of the same womb. We have the same father. We have the same elder brother in Jesus Christ. We have the same genes, we have the same spirit, we have the same name, we have the same future and inheritance. We're the same family. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's a worker. He's a man with a vision. He's industrious. He's a self-starter. He's trustworthy. Though others are lazy and distracted, this man is my fellow worker. I can depend upon him. When there's work to be done, he's there. And he's my fellow soldier. He's a man on mission. He's ready to engage in conflict, hardship, danger. He came all this way. He's brought this gift Providing companionship for me in the trenches. He's my fellow soldier. He's got this message of support. Paul says he gave himself to me in the work of Christ. They join their hearts and their labors. The church sending this man. They connected with Paul to complete what was lacking. Verse 30, for the work of Christ. He risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The work of Christ. Sending missionaries is the work of Christ. Sending brothers to missionaries to encourage and support them is the work of Christ. I never dreamed until I became a missions coordinator how complex, how demanding... Missions is. There's so much that goes into the work of Christ. If you're going to send a person, a man and a woman to be missionaries, you've got to really count the cost. Even packing their and storing their crates while they're gone. Dealing with governments. Reading their reports carefully and interceding with intelligence. Writing letters, mailing packages, making field visits. They've got medical issues and family issues, marital issues, safety issues, cultural issues. Receiving them home on furlough. Caring for them. Ministering to their children. Helping them with taxes. Transferring money. Sending out reports. Listening to them. Being a sounding board. Providing for their retirement so that they can end out and die well. It takes time, planning, and energy. This work of Christ, it's complex, it's consuming. So you have these three men Paul, the missionary that pioneers new territory, Timothy, the pastor that moves among the churches, and Epaphroditus, a messenger of a particular church who travels represents and ministers to the missionary on behalf of the church. Diverse members, all of the were of the body of Jesus Christ. Every member valuable, every member needed, their gifts contributing to the effectual working of the body. And all three given to work. Do you see that in verse 22? He served with me in the gospel. Notice in verse 25. He's my fellow worker. In verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ. That dirty four-letter word, it's work. And notice in chapter 4 and verse 3. Yes, I ask you 
also true companion helped these women who labored with me. They labored, they worked with me side by side in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The work of Christ is work. If you're considering the gospel ministry, you need to know right up front it's work. And if you're not willing to work, you need not apply. Look at Paul in verse 17. His life was being poured out as a drink offering for the souls all around him. For the Philippians and for those that he was ministering to in all of his missionary journeys. A drink offering was an adjunct to the meal offering. Paul saw his life as being sacrificed for the Philippians, for their faith. He was not able to live life as he might because he had sacrificed his life for them. He was always at their service. He was sacrificing his life on their behalf. I want you to turn in the back of your Bibles, if you have hard copies with you, to the back where you see the maps. If you go to those maps in the back of your Bible, toward the, the last, probably maybe the last map you'll have is the map of Paul's missionary journeys. I want you to find that. If you need to Google it, that's fine too. Paul's missionary journeys. I want you to look there. Just take a glance at his journeys. See them if you have your hard copy. They're color-coded. You'll see how that uh, there's the first journey, the second journey, the third journey. In those journeys, the first journey lasted two and a half years. And Paul went 1,300 miles, half by land, half by water. The second journey lasted even longer, three years, and went even twice as far, 2,700 miles. And the third journey lasted a year and a half longer than that, four and a half years, and he, he covered 3,500 miles. Again, half by land, half by sea. Get this, Paul lived 30 years after his conversion. He was 33 when he was converted. He was 63 when he died. 14 of those years after he was converted were spent in preparation. 14 years preparing to be a missionary. He was 47 when he was sent out, and he spent only 10 years of his life doing those three journeys. And those three journeys are covered in eight chapters of the book of Acts, Acts 13 to 21. And what you get from that, at least one point, is that missionary life is non-glamorous. It's a, lelf, uh, it's a life of self-denial. It's a life of survival. So much of your life on the mission field, you are figuring out how to survive, how to live. It's mundane. The larger part of Paul's ministries aren't even recorded by, the, by Luke in the book of Acts. It's like they're unworthy of note. When Paul is 57 years of age... He writes to Philemon, and he refers to himself as Paul the Aged. Now, how many of you are in your 50s, 60s? Paul's 57, and he is Paul the Aged. But he didn't become a missionary until he was 47. Older, mature men are needed as missionaries. Paul labored incessantly for 10 years. 
And during those 10 years, he traveled approximately 7,500 miles. Again, without the benefit of Delta or United. 7,500 miles. He endured that catalog of difficulties we read about in 2 Corinthians 11. And most of those happened on his third journey when he was even at his oldest age of being a missionary. During those 10 years, he wrote one-third of the New Testament. He planted 17 churches, nine of them directly and at least eight of them indirectly or by deputies. And he trained and strategically positioned a whole second generation of apostles, small a, under him. We're talking a man that poured out his life as a drink offering in the cause of Christ, the work of Christ, which was missions. And all the disappointments. When you look at Acts, as well as the other epistles, he writes of those disappointments. There were factious factions at home and abroad. Within churches and between churches. On the field, Jewish factions and Gentile prejudice. At home, there was Jewish factions and Gentile prejudice. He couldn't get churches to work together. The Jerusalem church hardly participated in gospel missions. They were too busy busy trying to protect the Jewishness of their Christian faith. But that didn't stop the Antioch church from proceeding with foreign missions. In Acts 13, that's the church that sent him as a missionary, Paul and Barnabas. It was Antioch, not Jerusalem. Early on, the church at Antioch had to do it all themselves. He comes back off his first journey, chapters 13 and 14, and right into the Jerusalem council that had to be called because you had those in Jerusalem and other places that were questioning his being so friendly with Gentiles and offering them the gospel so free of charge. He even had to confront Peter for his hypocrisy. On the matter. His labors were hit by a series of defections, by trusted companions at critical junctures. John Mark left him on that first journey, remember that? In Acts 13. It led to the conflict and the eventual separation between Barnabas and Paul. Peter fell flat on his face. And even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy, Galatians 2. And whole churches nearly fell off the wagon, Galatians 1. Will you turn with me to 2 Timothy in chapter 4? 2 Timothy in chapter 4. Paul writes to Timothy on his third, after his third journey, and he says in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, all those in Asia have turned from me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. And then there was Demas, Alexander the coppersmith, and all others who did forsake him. Pick up in 2 Timothy 4.9. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, he's deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in the ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one, underline, underscore, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He's pouring out his life 
as a drink offering for the work of Jesus Christ. He's finding not only opposition from the idolaters and the pagans, but he's finding incredible disappointments and desertions by those who name the name of Christ. And he finds that there's so few who will be faithful in the work of Jesus Christ. And at times, he's utterly deserted. Even those that he had his greatest hopes in forsook him. And he says in verse 17, how did he endure? How could he continue to go? How could he be so faithful in the work of Christ? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to him in doxology. To him be the glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, these things call upon us to be faithful in the work of Christ. They call upon us to identify those who are servants of Jesus Christ who are doing the work of Christ and to give ourselves in loyalty, in faithful support, to keep our shoulders on the wheel and pushing and not give up, not be distracted, not be discouraged, but to give ourselves to that which remains true. Heaven is still heaven. Hell is still hell. Calvary is still the only place where you'll find a fountain filled with blood where sinners can have their stains washed away. The gospel's true. It's not changed. And in all the times I've been discouraged and felt alone and deserted, I've had to remind myself there is still the cause of Christ. And the promises of God are true. And I must remain faithful no matter what. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. Missionary labors are no romantic adventure. The missionary, like the pastor, has to walk with and depend upon God. And the Lord was Paul's real source of strength and his deliverance. Timothy, look at Timothy. While all others are living for themselves... Timothy is giving himself to God's people, caring for them. He was serving in the work of the gospel. He says, it's rare. I have no man so like-minded as Timothy. All are thinking about how they can get on with life to please themselves, to guard and protect themselves. But Timothy, Timothy, he's got other people first in his heart. He's going to love them and serve them. Epaphroditus, he didn't regard his own life. He was sick as a dog, and he just kept going. And Paul exhorts them to receive and esteem this fellow brother, hold him in high esteem, because for the work of Christ, he almost died, and he was willing to die. All three of these men were given to the work of missions, All three were away from their homes, their culture, their family. They suffered great hardship. They faced death. And they would lay down their lives. Where did these men get it from? Will you notice Philippians and chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where did these three men get their drive? Where did they get their perseverance? Where did they get their heart? Where did they get their passion to be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of others, to give their lives, to risk their lives, to endure the worst? They got it from Jesus. They got it from Jesus. That's where we've got to get it. And unless we get that kind of heart from Jesus, we can dabble in missions, but we'll dabble only insofar as the sacrifice is not really sacrifice. It's convenient. It doesn't cost us a whole lot. We can get on with life as usual and and throw a few things toward missions. But if we have the heart of Christ, who came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost, he who left his throne and everything, all the dignities and glories of that external glory, laid it aside and came into this life as a servant, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's where the three men got it. And then there's the church. This church in Philippi, if you'll turn to chapter 4, it was started on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul was on the journey and he is headed for Asia. Then he had a vision and a man from Macedonia in the vision said, come over here and help us. So Paul changed his plan and left his, his plan to go into Asia and went on into Europe, headed down toward Greece. He goes there, and aren't we glad? That's when we see that there's now a church in Philippi. There's Athens, there's Thessalonica, there's Berea, and there's Corinth. He gets to Philippi, and he starts this church with Lydia, the businesswoman, the seller of purple, the jailer and his household, the slave girl, the female fortune teller uh, with a master for whom she made her money, and others. And in chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, your care again has been expressed. They did care. They loved Paul. They, they owed Paul their souls. He's the one who came and taught them the gospel. Paul knew they cared. But when he saw Epaphroditus, he was so encouraged. He says in verse 10, you lacked opportunity in the providence of God. They didn't have enough money to send or they didn't have a messenger to carry it. For some reason, they could not give it to him. And here's Paul in prison in a certain distress. He's in prison and he's penniless. But notice in verse 11 and 12, he's content. He's learned that in whatever condition he's in, to be content, he can have a lot or he can have absolutely nothing. But he's going to be content. He's going to be faithful in verse 13. He's going to remain focused. And there's some good lessons for us here that we can go through seasons of loss where we have so little. We can go through seasons of privation and disappointment. Disappointment where in the loss of a vision, you are down as flat as a flitter, as low as lower than a snake's belly. And yet learn to be content. Learn to be content in God's providence. Learn, learn. Do you see that word? Learn to be content. It's a process. You never really get there to perfection. In verse 10, their care flourished again. They raised, God raised up this messenger. They sent him. In verse 14, you shared with me in my distress. That's the word koinonia. You shared. You connected. You attached yourselves to me. You put your arms around me. You entered my life in troubles in real fellowship. In verse 15, 
You shared again. That's the word koinonia again. You shared from the beginning of the gospel as an infant church. You didn't say when we finally have our building bought and paid for and we have a complete staff and all the programs and ministries that a church is supposed to have, then we'll get involved and start sacrificing for missions. In verse 16, while at Thessalonica, they sent support time and again. Then they sent Epaphroditus to Rome. This church was conscious that Paul had these needs, these necessities. Missionaries need food. They need clothing, books and lodging and travel and taxes and fines. And they're out helping others. And oftentimes they're sharing with others out of their necessities. This is the work of Christ. Notice all the giving and receiving going on. Verses 16 and 18, Paul received their gift from Epaphroditus. He received. Verse 17, the Philippians received. They'll be receiving fruit to their account. They're laying up treasure in heaven, which they'll never lose. Thieves cannot break in and steal. Moth and rust can't touch it. You build your treasure in heaven. You receive fruit and you receive reward. Verse 18, God receives. God's receiving this sweet-smelling aroma, this acceptable sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. It delights the soul of God to see his children loving each other and working together and sacrificing for the cause that they together are in. God's heart is delighted. Parents, just like you are when you see your children giving to one another. If you ever see your children saying, oh, you go first. Oh, you take the biggest piece. Doesn't that thrill you? Wish it could happen often, more often. But God loves to see that among his people. In verse 19, the Philippians will receive. They'll receive God's supply. All of their needs, God will supply. And the church does have needs. It's not all about being focused in, the, in other nations, but there's, there's needs and there's cares in the body. But God has promised that he will be with us. He will supply our needs. And verse 20, God again is the receiver. In all of this work of Christ, when the church bands together and works hard in these ways, God receives the glory. See all the giving and receiving going on? Paul received, the Philippians received twice. God receives twice in all those verses. So here's a church. Paul was among them less than 18 months. Leaders were trained. They had pastors and deacons. He returned on two other occasions, Acts 20, 2 Corinthians 2, and they became mission-minded senders. They sent Paul, the missionary, the founder of the church. They sent Timothy, their pastor, to Ephesus, and Epaphroditus, their messenger, for a year or more. Do you see this church, their faith, their sacrifice, They were all in the cause of missions. They were willing to let their their choice leaders go and send them with their blessing and with their support. They had a maturity about them, and even as an infant church. Let's ask ourselves, are we senders? Parents. Are you raising your children that you might send them as a missionary? Parents, are you putting those thoughts in their minds that maybe God would raise them up so the church can send them to the other side of the planet with your grandchildren? Church. Will you be willing to send your pastor to another church or to a mission field? This church sent money. They found ways. 
Paul was in Thessalonica and repeatedly they sent. Then to Rome. They were generous. They cared. They were not consumed with their own things. They were consumed with the gospel and with the souls of men. Not only those that they lived around, but those that they had never ever seen, would never ever see in this life. Three men. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. All of them givers, goers, workers, soldiers. Men that love people. Their, in, their level of income did not stop them. They could have much. They could have little. It didn't matter to them. The, their mission in life was not to accumulate and climb ladders. Their great mission in life was the work of Christ. And I asked, where are the men? Are our churches raising up such men? Is your church a seedbed? Seedbed's a specially prepared box used to grow plants in a controlled environment before transplanting into the garden. Is there such a life and culture here among you as a seedbed that plants can be raised up and transplanted into other nations where they are equipped and they are supported and they will go with the gospel and do there what you are doing here. Are you modeling? Pastors, elders, let me ask you, are you modeling? Are you modeling for your churches? Are you pastors, elders, deacons, are you speaking regularly with people without the benefit of a pulpit in front of you? Are you in the streets and on the job and in the restaurants and in the neighborhoods, pastors, elders, are you talking with people face-to-face, nose-to-nose? Are you speaking with people about their eternal souls? Are you given to personal evangelism? And if you ever had dreams of being a missionary, how could you possibly dream of doing it there, what you're not doing here? We must be evangelists here if we think we'll ever do it there. And it's it's easy to do it for a few weeks. I know that. But if you go and move there and live there and rub shoulders and do life in that community and in that nation, you'll find it just becomes just as difficult to do it there as it, does, as it is here. But are we training? Do we have that kind of mind and culture about our church and our hearts? Are we training one another to this wartime urgency? Do we have evidence in our churches that, that they're going to be anything more than just a one or two generation church? I would say in closing, brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves to the work of Christ. In everything you see here in the letter to the Philippians, there's communication. There's coming alongside one another. There's encouragement. There's support. They're praying together. Notice in chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5 and 6. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and, and see how the apostle communicates his affection. And notice chapter 4 and verse 1. As he speaks to these people, all my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. See how affectionate he was then? See how he communicates relationship and affection and and faithfulness to them? And the encouragement, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See how he builds upon that. And all through the letter, he's constantly referring to them as my brothers, brethren in the Lord. This is the work of Christ. Building up the quality of this body. 
building up the culture of being centered in Jesus Christ, making it that seedbed where the gospel flourishes. And that's what every member of this congregation can do. You can give yourself first and foremost to Jesus Christ. As I was saying this morning, make sure that you are meeting with God on a daily, personal, private basis, holding communion with your Lord, having that interplay of intimacy between you and him, having him fill your heart with the realities of another world, and not give yourself to be centered in this life, building, putting your roots down ever more deeply into this earth. Let's give ourselves to things that are eternal, things that really matter, things that bring glory to God. Doing our work with excellence, raising our families so that they really do shine with the realities of the Christian faith. but having an obvious broken-hearted compassion for lost people here that will abound into other nations. Let us come out of ourselves. Let us look onto the fields that are white unto harvest. As Jesus moved in and out among the multitudes, he saw them. He opened his eyes and he really saw them. And he was moved with compassion. Let's see them as they are. Let's interpret all of life by the the realities of the gospel. And make sure that we're all in with the work of Jesus Christ. The man that I'm going to share with you tomorrow night, Samuel Zwemer. He's called the Flying Dutchman, like Eric Little was called the Flying Dutchman, or uh, uh, Scotsman. The Flying Dutchman was the apostle to the Muslims. He labored for Christ in Saudi Arabia for 38 years, from the 1880s into the uh, 1920s, right through World War I. And now how he labored, how he, how he served, how he sacrificed, And may it be an encouragement to us. There are many who have gone before us, gone before us, that have shown us how to do it. May God help us and bless us.